Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. I can tell what season it is by the tomato questions I get. In the fall, the question is, can I get these green tomatoes to ripen soon? In winter, the question is, is it too soon to plant tomatoes? Come spring, it's, should I prune those first tomato flowers off? And in summer, it's the frantic tomato grower who asks, What's wrong with my tomatoes? They're turning brown and soft on the bottom. Well, that, of course, is blossom end rot. Today, I thought we would tackle that summertime question. Because blossom end rot can be thwarted now if you take the right steps before and just after you plant your tomatoes, which just might be around now in mild winter areas or in just a few weeks in colder climates. Also, we talk with Grow Your Soil author Diane Meisler, a longtime gardener who champions the garden skills of the chop and drop and the snip and flip, sometimes known as composting in place. Plus, she owns a vegetable tutu and plays the banjo. In other words, my dream date. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in just a bit over 30 minutes. Let's go. If you just planted your tomatoes and peppers, or if you will be doing so in the weeks ahead, then this episode of the Garden Basics podcast is for you if you want to possibly head off one of the most vexing problems facing tomato and pepper growers, the late spring, early summer onset of blossom and rot. You know what that is. That's where the bottoms of the tomatoes and even some pepper varieties might turn brown, wrinkly, and soft. However, if your tomatoes and peppers have been in the ground for a while, uh, it might be too late. But listen anyway, because you might be able to minimize the damage before it's too late by modifying some of your gardening habits. Tomato plants with blossom end rot show small light brown spots at the blossom end of immature fruit. Remember, the blossom end is that portion of the fruit that's opposite the stem. In other words, it's the bottom of the fruit. The affected area gradually expands into a sunken, leathery, brown or black lesion as the fruit ripens. Hard brown areas may develop inside the fruit, either with or without external symptoms. According to the tomato experts at the University of California, Davis, the problem occurs when tomato plants have grown rapidly during the early part of the season and then are subjected to hot, dry weather when the fruits are in an early stage of development. You know, sort of like the weather can get in late June, and sometimes early June, and sometimes here in late May. Some tomato varieties are more susceptible to blossom end rot, including plum and pear-shaped tomatoes. Although the weather and the variety of tomatoes sets the table for blossom end rot, there are a lot of other factors that are major contributors. And the main problem? It's you, the gardener. It's operator error. Yes, you may know that blossom end rot is related to a deficiency of calcium in the tomato fruit. 
But that occurs for several reasons that can be classified as operator error. Among them, too much water on the plant, not enough water on the plant, irregular soil moisture brought on by, well, you know, irregular watering, too much nitrogen fertilizer, planting in soil whose pH is not conducive to calcium uptake by the plant. That is a pH that's too low, below 5.5, or too high, above 8. Planting in poorly drained soil can lead to blossom end rot. Planting in too sandy of a soil can lead to blossom end rot. Improper planting can lead to blossom end rot. One solution is to spread the roots out when planting. That can help the plant adapt better. Too much potassium. Too much pruning of the plant. A lack of having an organic mulch, because mulch helps moderate soil temperature and moisture fluctuations. Maybe you're using a plastic mulch. That can raise the soil temperature too high, and that can lead to blossom end rot. And then there are just those tomato varieties and bell pepper varieties that tend to be prone to blossom end rot, especially the narrow paste tomatoes. The most critical mistake gardeners contribute to blossom end rot is not monitoring the soil moisture at the root level. Although the surface of the soil may appear dry, the moisture level a few inches down may be correct. If more water is added at that time, then the soil becomes so moist that oxygen is unavailable for root growth. Calcium won't be absorbed. So why is that? Excess soil moisture combined with a lack of soil oxygen speeds the formation of what are called Casparian strips, which are deposits on the young root tips that have become suberized, waxy substances, and there's no way water and nutrients can move through that. If the soil in the root zone is too dry, then the calcium won't move to the roots. Dry soil, hot, dry, windy days create a water and calcium deficiency in the plant. Even a brief soil water deficit can disrupt water and nutrient flow to the plant. And if this occurs while fruits are developing, like they are in May and June, then blossom and rot will likely develop. Automatic irrigation timers may save you time, but it may not save your tomato plants from blossom and rot. Watering schedules need to be adjusted to the weather to maintain even soil moisture. But fortunately, we live in the 21st century and there are devices available that can monitor the soil moisture for you. And some of them are rather inexpensive. I have one in my yard now in one of my raised beds. It's the Rainpoint Soil Moisture Meter. It's Bluetooth operated, it monitors the soil moisture, it monitors the temperature of the soil, and it sends that data back up to an indoor monitor. So you just need to put it in a place where you, you'll walk by it and you'll see if your plants need water and what the soil temperature is. And they're reasonably priced too. And that again was the Rainpoint Bluetooth Soil Moisture Meter with Indoor Monitor. They also have a Wi-Fi version as well that can actually turn your water system on for you when the soil needs the water. And when it comes to garden problems, many folks think the answer is, well, I'll just buy something and put it on the plant. Buying stuff won't necessarily end blossom end rot. Among the store-bought remedies that are frequently suggested that have been proven to be of little or no value to end blossom end rot, including the calcium sprays, a foliar calcium spray that you spray on the tomato leaves. In university tests, studies showed that calcium does not move from leaves to the fruit. Thus, foliar sprays of calcium won't correct blossom end rot. Nor do tomato fruits have openings in their skin through which calcium can be absorbed. 
So maybe you're thinking, well, I'll just add some more calcium to the soil, maybe gypsum or limestone or eggshells. It may work, but it depends on your soil. Limestone can raise the pH in soil to a range more favorable to tomatoes and calcium uptake. Ideally, that pH should be around 7.0. But if your soil is already around 7.0 or even more alkaline, then adding limestone may raise the pH to the point where calcium uptake is again slow down. What about adding crushed eggshells to the soil? For that to be effective, it needs to be done well before transplanting time. That might help to overcome any calcium deficiency that's already in the soil, but it's not going to help your tomatoes if they're already in the ground. Now, what about gypsum? A lot of people will put gypsum around their tomato plants. According to Dr. Linda Chalker-Scott of Washington State University's Horticulture Department, and she's the author of the award-winning book, The Informed Gardener, she says home gardeners are wasting their money. Most urban soils are not improved by adding gypsum, she states. Adding gypsum to sandy or non-salty soils is a waste of money, natural resources, and can have negative impacts on the plant, the soil, and the ecosystem's health. However, she points out, gypsum can improve the structure and fertility of heavy clay soils, but consider another undesirable result to adding gypsum. Gypsum can have negative effects on mycorrhizal inoculation of the roots, so you may be slowing down that soil biology with too much gypsum. Maintaining the proper balance of potassium, phosphorus, and other soil nutrients and avoiding excess growth due to overfertilization with nitrogen is recommended. There have been several university studies, including a study from Cornell University and one from North Dakota State University, that suggest a low nitrogen, high phosphorus, low potassium fertilizer, that's where the three numbers might look like 4-12-4 or some ratio similar to that, that might help control blossom end rot. But remember, once your tomatoes have blossom end rot, the problem isn't going to go away from those tomatoes, but you can help the other tomatoes that have yet to form. Another problem that can lead to more blossom end rot is the wrong kind of nitrogen fertilizer. Excess levels of ammonium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium have been reported to reduce the availability of calcium. A University of Nebraska study reported that the use of nitrate nitrogen stimulates calcium uptake, while ammonium nitrate reduces the uptake of calcium. So you're going to have to read the label closely of your favorite vegetable fertilizer to see if their source of nitrogen is nitrate nitrogen or ammonium nitrate. So you'd be looking for nitrate nitrogen. The expert's best advice is before you plant, do a soil test that can help determine what needs to be added and what shouldn't be added to your garden soil. If you don't believe me, listen to what Northern California nursery owner Don Shore told us last year. First of all, let's be optimistic. We're in an area where it's really easy to grow tomatoes in general. And most of California, we have, uh, we have a climate that allows us to grow them without using a whole lot of pesticides and, and other remedies. But you're referencing BER, blossom end rot, which shows up almost always on some of the very first tomatoes that set, the ones that people get so excited about. They set early, they planted early, they, they want to beat the season, they get some fruit set on there, and then they look on the bottom and if it's still green, they sometimes notice a little discoloration or a little oddity to the bottom or the blossom end of the fruit. As it ripens, that part is soft and mushy and unpalatable. Yes, you can eat the rest of the fruit, but it's very disappointing when that happens with the very first fruit that's set. Notice 
It's usually on the first fruit that's set. And uh, we know now about blossom end rot that it is primarily a disorder related to low temperatures during the fruit expansion phase and sometimes keeping the soil too wet when the nights are cold. Ah, yes. And of course, people will rush to the nursery and look for your shelf of calcium sprays because they keep hearing that blossom end rot is due to a calcium shortage when it really is just an inability of the plant to uptake that calcium because what's going on in the soil, as you mentioned, with cold, wet soil, uh, it, it can't uptake calcium. How's that uh, calcium spray shelf doing? Well, I, I have it up there for the people who won't listen to me. And uh, <laughs> it's a, we not only get uh, requests for calcium spray, we get requests for gypsum, which is a calcium product. We also get requests recently for some reason for superphosphate, rock phosphate, potassium products, and of course, the inevitable Epsom salts as somehow going to solve this problem because they're focusing on some kind of cation, some kind of fertilizer remedy for what is actually a physiological disorder of the plant. So the the bad news is you don't have an on-the-shelf product that's going to solve it. The good news is as the soil warms up and the plant grows and you water deeply and evenly, the next fruit will be fine. One thing many gardeners have observed is that some varieties are way more susceptible to blossom end rot than others. Roma, which is a very popular home garden tomato variety, the first fruit almost always get blossom end rot. Just plan on it. And actually, you can you can see that discoloration even before the fruit ripens. If you see that, my suggestion is just pick those off, dispose of them. The next ones that come along will be fine. So this is a problem that the plant basically outgrows. Yeah, blossom and rod, uh, for the most part, is operator error. And it, it could be a number of things, like you mentioned, uneven watering. Too much nitrogen fertilizer can also lead yep. to that as well. Or if your soil pH is wrong, I think tomatoes prefer a soil pH usually in the range of, what, 6 to 6.8 or so? Yeah, and most of us on our side of the valley are dealing with even higher pH issues, and so you, that might be a factor. Ammonium-based fertilizers are definitely correlated with it. So if you're using ammonium sulfate, that could be a factor. Again, the most common correlation I've observed is people planting early and they may not be listening to this podcast which tells them to plant on april 27th well that's here maybe (laughs) here in this area uh, waiting until the soil temperature is about 60 degrees or nighttime temperatures are about 55 degrees you can plant earlier and the plants will grow fine if the temperatures don't fluctuate too wildly but that early fruit will be affected and so one of the most common things i find when i ask people when did you plant is that these are the folks who planted in march early april in this area the plants are growing fine but that first fruit may just have to be sacrificed good news we got a very long growing season plenty of time for good fruit to develop Yeah, exactly. Have you asked the question when people are complaining about blossom end rot if they are growing in raised beds? Because sometimes if you plant in too sandy of a soil, that can lead to blossom end rot. I'm sure that's a factor. And we have more and more people doing that. And honestly, managing the soil and the soil moisture, especially, and in fact, the nitrogen in raised beds is more complicated than just out in the open garden soil. So that does that becomes an added factor as well. So blossom end rot becomes one of those things that we just have to move through. And uh, I watched the weather and I've noticed a strong correlation of blossom end rot about eight weeks after we have a unusually cool 
period of night temperatures. Mm. As we record this show, we're going into a period when the nights are going to drop below 50 degrees uh, for three or four nights here in the Sacramento Valley. Uh, That's not harmful to the plant. But my guess, if I marked my calendar for about eight weeks out, because that's how long it takes for from blossom to pick for most varieties, about eight to nine weeks for the fruit to ripen from when it first sets, I'm guessing some of those fruit will be affected by those nighttime temperatures. My only suggestion would be to gardeners to water more carefully, water deeply, thoroughly, and then have intervals between watering so you're not keeping it constantly soggy. Uh, That really is the key anyway to successful tomato growing, but it really seems to be a very important factor in blossom end rot. And I think a lot of these purchased alleged uh, cures for blossom end rot puts in the gardener's mind that they work, when in reality what they're doing, they're now paying more attention to their plants, and they may spray on a a calcium spray that basically just rolls off the plant, doesn't do any good. (laughs) But they are watching their watering more. And they're they're being more careful. They're they're watering more attentively, which is really what we're trying to get at. Also, the placebo effect is a real phenomenon in horticulture. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) It it is. I did this. I did this. It worked. Therefore, I'm going to do it again next year. (laughs) Yeah, we usually do more combination attempted cures than just one. And then we go back and think, oh, well, that one thing worked. Maybe. Maybe not. The Tums, the, the Tums tablet underneath the plant when it was planted, right? Oh, don't don't even say that. <laughs> Let's back up. We don't recommend Tums for planting <laughs> with yes. tomato plants. And Epsom salts don't do anything for blossom end rot. <laughs> One nice thing about using mulch around tomato plants is that can help uh, moderate blossom end rot because what mulch does, it helps to moderate soil temperature and moisture fluctuations. Yeah, we want to keep the soil moisture even and not keep the roots saturated and not let them go too dry. Seems to just be a stress reaction more than anything. We'll have links in today's show notes with even more information about blossom end rot in tomatoes and peppers. You've heard me talk about the benefits of Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric container. Smart Pots are sold around the world and are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Many of the imitators are selling cheaply made fabric pots that fall apart quickly. Not Smart Pots. There are satisfied Smart Pot owners who have been using the same Smart Pots for over a decade, actually approaching 20 years. When you choose Smart Pot fabric containers, you know you'll be having a superior growing experience with the best product on the market. And your plants will appreciate Smart Pots too. Because of the 1 million microscopic holes in Smart Pots, your soil will have better drainage and the roots will be healthier. They won't be going round and round on the outside of the soil ball like you see in so many plastic pots. The air pruning qualities of Smart Pots creates more branching of the roots, filling more of the usable soil in the Smart Pot. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com fred. And don't forget that slash fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your Smart Pot order by using the coupon code FRED. Use it at checkout from the Smart Pot store. Visit smartpots.com FRED for more information about the complete line of Smart Pots lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer FRED 10% discount. 
Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. You want to start the backyard fruit and nut orchard of your dreams, but maybe you don't know where to begin. Or maybe you're currently growing fruit and nut trees and you've got a million questions, such as what are the tastiest fruits to grow? Where can I go to buy some of these delectable fruit and nut trees you've been reading about? And then how do you care for all of these trees, including planting, pruning, and harvesting? I've got one online stop in mind for you where all these questions you might have will get answered. It's DaveWilson.com. That's Dave Wilson Nursery, the nation's largest wholesaler of fruit and nut trees for the backyard garden. They have planting tips, taste test results, and links to nurseries in your area that carry Dave Wilson fruit trees. Click on the Home Garden tab at DaveWilson.com for all of these links, including a link to their years of informative videos about growing fruit and nut trees that they've posted on the Dave Wilson Nursery YouTube channel. Start the backyard orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. I came across our next guest while doing a search for the poop loop. And what am I talking about? Well, you may remember that uh, back in, what was that, episode 179, Steve Zion was our guest, and he was talking about the poop loop, how Mother Nature feeds your garden. You can go back and listen to episode 179, if you wish, and uh, learn more about it. But I've never, I've known Steve for 40 years, and I've never heard him use the phrase poop loop. And I'm thinking, where did he come up with that? So I started diving down into all the little rabbit holes that we call the internet, and I finally saw it mentioned in a scholarly paper that was uh, commented on by Elaine Ingham, a very prominent microbiologist and also a, a friend of Steve's. And I figure, well, that's uh, uh, where it came from, but maybe there's literature on it. And I started searching for books that mention poop loop. And up popped a book called Grow Your Soil, Harness the Power of the Soil Food Web to Create Your Best Garden Ever. Now, as far as I know, Poop Loop is not in the book, but it, it still pops up because, well, you know the internet. And this book is written by Diane Meisler. Diane lives in Nevada County. She is a gardener for more than 50 years, a certified permaculture designer. We might get into that, too. She writes a garden column for the Union newspaper in Nevada County. Nevada County, by the way, is in the Sierra Foothills, north of Sacramento. And Diane, it's a pleasure to have you on here. And because I went out and bought your book... And I fell in love with it because you make life simple for all of us confused by a, so many horticultural <laughs> terms. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for having me. And Elaine Ingham wrote the foreword for my book. That, you know that? I, yeah, that's how I think uh, it came across on the Internet. As uh, and In fact, I think on the Internet it said she was the co-writer. And then I went to the book and go, well, all she did was write the foreword. My yeah. heavens. Yeah, she hasn't gotten around to writing a book. She's a great great person and a great speaker too by the way yeah yeah all right so grow your soil is the book and it answers a lot of questions for me i have been trying to get a straight answer from anybody for the last uh, 30 years or so what is humus and uh, people just sort of stammer around and say well it's it's good tilth okay well, what's tilth uh it, it's it's humus well no come on what is it Finally, in the book, Grow Your Soil, we have a de definition of what humus is. Thank you for that, Diane. I appreciate it very much. Be my guest. Tell us about humus. Humus is a long, wiggly chain of carbon molecules. That's the, the 
product of organic matter digesting itself in the in the garden. Every everything in the soil food web eats everything else, and as they eat things, they they create carbon that creates kind of a does kind of a bunny hop and makes a long chain. And humus serves the purpose of holding water and air and nutrients in the soil. Yeah, you mentioned in your book uh, that that the carbon in the soil comes in roughly three forms: living, dead, and really, really dead. And humus <laughs> is in that uh, latter category. Right. Right. Yeah, living stuff is anything, roots or bugs or worms, anything alive that's in the soil. And dead is the stuff we put into compost, not alive, but not not quite composted. And then the end product of that is humus. And we should point out that Diane Meisler is also known as the queen of the snip and flip and and the the duchess of chop and drop. (laughs) Right. And we should explain what that is. Well, I try to make garden maintenance easy and also i'm creating mulch as i go i i throw weeds and everything i prune onto the garden onto my mulch so i go out with my pruning shears and a holster when i'm out puttering in the yard and if something's in my way threatening to poke out my eye or if it just needs to be pruned i cut it and cut little pieces and throw it down on the spot snip and flip and chop it yeah are you doing this with all weeds or just weeds you know won't, when you're not looking, start uh, procreating? I do it with everything but Bermuda grass, which is the spawn of Satan. But um, other weeds, because I've got mulch down, they don't take hold. Or if they do, it's easy to pull them out because the, the mulch is soft. If there are seeds, I don't worry about that either because that just makes for more mulch when the, when I pull up the seedlings and throw them down. And by throwing it down, especially if they haven't flowered yet, uh, you are feeding the soil with living matter. Right. Yeah, I'm basically composting in place with anything green and any brown stuff, leaves or pine needles in my case. And you don't find that makes the soil too acidic? No, the if you have enough organic matter, the, the pH is pretty self-correcting. Yeah, let's talk. A lot of people are confused about pH as well, which is I I think it's short for percent hydrogen or something like that. I think you're right, and it 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 determines the acidity or the alkalinity of the soil. Why is that important? Uh, because plants like to be in a certain range. Garden plants like to be uh, very slightly acidic, like a little under seven, which is neutral. Shrubs tend to like more acidic soil. Uh, compost tends to buffer itself. I put pine needles in my compost and it it tends to correct itself. So with mulch, um, because shrubs tend to be acidic and brown matter, like woody stuff, tends to create more fungus and more acid. If you mulch the area with what's growing in it, it tends to be the right pH for that plant. Yeah, pH, I've always uh, tried to describe it to people as pipelines in the soil that help the critters in the soil deliver food to the plants. The bigger the pipeline, the wider the pipeline, the more food they can deliver to the plant. And if the pH is wrong, those are very narrow little tubes. And the mycorrhizal activity going on down there, they're sort of like the little waiters and waitresses of the underground world, and they've got their trays of food. And sometimes if that pipeline is too small, they have to get down on all fours and crawl through that tube <laughs> in order to feed the plant. Whereas if it's a bigger tube, if the pH is correct, hey, they, they can roller skate right in. Uh-huh, that's a great analogy. <laughs> it, it works for me. The one uh, thing in your book that you do uh, stress, 
in the book, Grow Your Soil. And you have suggestions about creating healthy living soil. We are getting more and more away from rototilling. Uh, tell us why. I, I'm a reformed rototiller. I used to love it, but um, or hand digging. But both of those uh, disturb the soil food web. The mycorrhizae, which you mentioned, the fungus that works as kind of a hair extension for roots and brings water and nutrients from much farther away than the roots could grow. Those are pretty delicate, and rototilling chops them up, chops up earthworms, dries out the soil, and also uh, mixes the carbon in the soil with oxygen and creates carbon dioxide and floats up to the atmosphere to destroy life as we know it. So tilling both disturbs the soil food web and creates more carbon dioxide. What I like to tell people is if you really need a loud, heavy machine to play with, go get yourself a chipper shredder. That's right. You're my kind of guy. Uh, I've got my eight horsepower a BCS. Always handy. Always waiting for the next tree to fall. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chipper is a great tool to have for, for my way of gardening. But as you point out in the book, that woody material from chipped and shredded tree branches is probably better suited as mulch for woody plants. Whereas in your vegetable garden, you want more of a fine product, such as what? Weeds and compost, more composted matter. How do you feel about worm castings? Oh, I think they're great. You need a really big area, though, to get enough for a garden. Right. But if you have a compost pile, you'll have worm castings in that. Well, that's true. Yeah, exactly. And you're also a, a big proponent of uh, no bare dirt. Right. Sometimes buy straw or alfalfa hay and use that if I don't have enough. But usually there's enough with leaves and weeds and things that I prune and chip. If you're chipping fresh green stuff, that, that'll work for a vegetable garden. And brown dead stuff is better for under shrubs. So leaves that fall from the tree, is that brown material or green material? Yeah, that's brown material. That's brown material. So that's where I get confused. Is Well, it depends on how, how freshly fallen they are. They're they're sort of green when they first fall. Right. So what I like to do is uh, go through the neighborhood, rake up people's oak leaves, bring them home, put them in a metal trash can, stick my string trimmer down there, chop them up real fine, or run over them with my mulching mower, and then spre oh. spread it on top of my uh, raised beds for the winter. Yeah, good work. It, it increases the life in the soil, I've found, that when you move that mulch aside in early spring, there's all sorts of interesting critters down there. Uh-huh. Well, if you have a diverse enough mix, you'll get more good guys than bad guys. Yeah. Now, isn't that the truth? And, and you talk about that in your book as well, that if you just give your garden a chance and have a wide variety of plants in your garden, you're going to attract the good guys. They'll do the battle with the bad guys and equilibrium will be maintained. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, it, it's, it's, <laughs> well, it's a long battle. Yeah, sometimes you have to go through a, some bugs or some diseases, but generally they'll take care of themselves given enough diversity and time. And I see your opinion on fertilizer. You'll never get a job at a nursery after making this statement. <laughs> you don't need no stinking fertilizer most of the time. Yeah. What do you have against fish emulsion? Um, I use fish emulsion. I, I spray compost tea on my plants and put a little fish emulsion in for good measure and kelp. So I'm, I'm not a hardliner, but 
generally if you have compost and mulch, you don't need any fertilizer. Exactly, because you're feeding the soil. Yeah. You're not feeding the plant. And that's what that's the goal here is to feed the soil. Uh huh. Or as you would put it in a book cleverly titled Grow Your Soil. <laughs> exactly. And like you uh, point out uh, succinctly is don't spray that weed be, because you're already pulling it. Mm-hmm. Right. Pull it and lay it down as mulch or eat it. Edible. Well, yeah. If it, if it is edible. I mean, I always admire a lawn with dandelions in it. Uh-huh. Some people don't, though. <laughs> We've been talking with Diane Meisler, author of the book, Grow Your Soil, Harness the Power of the Soil Food Web to Create Your Best Garden Ever. It's available wherever you get your books. And Diane, I understand you own a vegetable tutu. I do. <laughs> I also have a band. I When I play at the farmer's market, I wear that. It's got net and felt vegetables. It's, it's quite stunning. <laughs> and and as you mentioned, you play the banjo. The band is Purden's Crossing, a Nevada County staple. Uh-huh. Right. And uh, if you do an internet search, you can probably find some uh, videos of Purden's Crossing doing their, uh, as you put it, organic Americana music. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Diane Maisler, Grow Your Soil is the name of the book. Diane, thank you so much for a few minutes of your time today. Thanks for having me, Fred. Nice talking to you. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode in the show notes. Maybe you'd rather read it than listen to it. That's not a problem. We have a complete transcript posted, and you can find that link in the show notes or on our new homepage, GardenBasics.net. That's where you can find that link as well as all the previous episodes of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. There, you can leave a message or link up with our social media pages, including our YouTube video page. And at GardenBasics.net, click on the tab at the top of the page to read the Garden Basics Beyond Basics newsletter. And that usually has a bonus podcast attached to it. Plus, in the show notes, there are links to any products or books mentioned during the show and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can just listen to the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. Want to leave us a question? Again, check the links at GardenBasics.net. And when you click on any episode at GardenBasics.net, you're going to find a link to SpeakPipe, where you can leave us an audio question without making a phone call. Or go to them directly, SpeakPipe.com slash GardenBasics. You want to call us? We have that number posted at GardenBasics.net. Spoiler alert, it's 916-292-8964, 916-292-8964. Email? Sure, send it along with your pictures to fred at farmerfred.com. Or again, go to GardenBasics.net to get that link. And if you send us a question, be sure to tell us where you're gardening, because as I am fond of saying, all gardening is local. Find it all at GardenBasics.net. Garden Basics with Farmer Fred comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Garden Basics, it's available wherever podcasts are handed out. For more information about the podcast, visit our website, GardenBasics.net. And that's where you can find out about the free Garden Basics newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And thank you so much for listening.